Good morning. We continue with our catechism study this morning, question and answer seven. And the passage we're going to deal with, um, it's Tuesday before the Friday on which Jesus is crucified. And Matthew 22 records three sort of last-ditch efforts by the leaders to make Jesus look bad. Alexander McLaren wrote this, Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, who were at daggers drawn with each other, patched up an alliance against Jesus, whom they all hated. Their questions were cunningly contrived to entangle him in the cobwebs of Cassius tree and theological hair-splitting, but he walked through the fine-spun snares as a lion might stalk away with the nooses set for him dangling behind him. Don't you love that? Because uh, they, were, they were trying to trap him. That's just one right after the other. First, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that had taken their shot at Jesus, and he had silenced them. Then it was the Sadducees who came along and tried, but they also bit the dust. And uh, now in our passage this morning, it's the Pharisees again who tried to trip up Jesus. And it's Matthew 22, 34 to 40. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, it's Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And uh, we also will be going to Deuteronomy uh, in a little bit, so you, you might want to get ready for that as well. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, these words have become so familiar to uh, many of us that I think we miss how great a statement it was when these words were first uttered the first time. As we're going to see, Jesus quotes from uh, the Old Testament scriptures, but nowhere are they spoken of as the first and second commandments. So in one short answer to a question sprung on him by his enemies to try to get himself to shoot himself in the foot, we're looking at a most incredible piece of ethical and moral and spiritual summary that has ever crossed the lips of man, I think. So our catechism question and answer number seven. Let's read the question and the answer together. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Now, there's a tall order for you. Um, we're going we're gonna to focus this morning on, on loving God and loving our neighbors. Because if we succeed at that, then what God forbids should never be done will not be done. And what God commands should always be done will be done. That's how inclusive these two commandments are. And in fact, skip down to the last verse in our passage for this morning to see just how inclusive. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Tertullian says that the Jews had a um, sort of a... Uh, not a tradition, but actually they just did it normally of hanging up uh, their 
commands just all over the place. So that when you would walk around the city or walk around your house, you would see the commands of God regularly to remind you of what God wanted you to, to do and what God wanted you to be. So it's kind of like here we've got two major pegs that are hanging around the, the city or in your home. And one is love God and one is love others. And there is nothing in the scriptures regarding the commands of God to us that cannot be hung on one of these two pegs. So Jesus takes the Ten Commandments, and he really boils it down to two commandments. Not because some of the ten are dropped, but because every one of the ten fits under either here or here. For example, we're going to get into the Ten Commandments in in just a couple weeks. We're going to go one by one through them. And one through four of the Ten Commandments hang on love God. And five through ten of the commandments hang on love others, love neighbors as yourself. I love how one commentator put it. Into these two great commandments, therefore, let our hearts be delivered as into a mold. That's that's a cool picture. If our hearts conform to these two molds of love God and, and love our neighbor, we'll live exactly like God wants us to live. And we'll live exactly like Jesus lived. And we'll live exactly like we will live in our resurrected body on the renewed earth someday. So from this text, three questions this morning. Who's the questioner? What is the question? What is the answer? And then along the way, what does it mean for us? And we'll kind of dip in and out of that. So the questioner first. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. See, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The word literally is had gagged the Sadducees, so that they were not able to respond at all. And they they just kind of trickled away. And I'm sure that made the Pharisees schizophrenic because they hated the Sadducees. So to see them lose at something was cause for a party. But on the other hand, they hated Jesus just as much as they hated the Sadducees. And to think that he was theologically decking them one by one by one was just, just a bit too much for them to take. So they called an emergency meeting. They chose their most skilled lawyer and sent him to ask Jesus a question that they themselves debated endlessly. And they expected that would surely trip Jesus up. Now, being a lawyer back there did not mean what we understand as a lawyer. It meant that he was very skilled in the law of Moses, particularly. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And his assignment was to find out how much Jesus actually knew and to instigate sort of a theological wrestling match with him to see if he could pin Jesus to the theological mat. That's what he was after. So that's the questioner. Now, the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, debating this issue was both work and hobby for these guys. And their question isn't just, which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest? Their question is, which of all of the laws is the greatest? And they had them all counted. Anybody know how many there were? 613. Give Brick Carly a star. (laughs) 613 of them. And um, of those, 365 were negative, and they said that correlates to the days of the year. And the other 248 were positive, now get this, which accorded with the members of a man's body. 
I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you figure that out, but, but that's what they did. And they had no consensus on what the greatest commandment was among themselves. Some said it was circumcision. Some said it was the Sabbath. Some said it was the wearing of phylacteries, which we'll, we'll see in just a minute. And there, and there were others. And it sounds pretty ridiculous to us. But that's always a human tendency, isn't it? Just tell me what counts and what doesn't count in obeying God, and I can keep score. But God doesn't want a scorekeeper. He wants a lover. So that's the question, and now the answer, and we'll spend most of our time on this. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So first of all, the what? What's the greatest commandment? It's love. But what is that little four-letter word mean? We really overwork that word. Uh, I love my big truck. Have I ever mentioned that I have the biggest truck in the church? Do I? Yeah, I guess I mentioned it. So I, I love my big truck. But I also love my wife, and I had better not get those confused. I love my power drill, but I love God. I love my homemade Heath Bar ice cream, but I also love Mike Brown. But I love Mike Brown because he loves my homemade Heath Bar ice cream as well. <laughs> Not true. Mike Brown is one of the easiest persons that you will ever find to love. You see what I mean about how we overuse that word? And then, and then most of the time when we use it, it's supposed to have sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling about it. So that makes it so tough for me to love someone who annoys me and makes those warm feelings kind of run and hide, whether that's my neighbor or my wife or even my God. So what does Jesus mean when he says agape? That's the word for love. What does he, what does he mean when he says agape God and agape your neighbor? He doesn't mean be romantic, be brotherly. Uh, the Greek language has other words for, for those things. Agape love is unique. It means faithfulness. It means commitment. It means a love that keeps on loving as an act of the will. That goes so contrary to everything we want to think. We think it has to have to do with feelings. It doesn't. It could. They could be there, but it's not prerequisite for it. Agape love is unconditional, and it does not depend on the loveliness of the object of our love or what you might get in return for your love. It has nothing to do with that. It is unmerited, it is totally grace-filled, and it does not depend on warm and fuzzy feelings. And agape love is always shown by what it does. And God, of course, is the best agape of anybody. And listen, listen to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates, he acts, he does his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ did for us. He died. He acted for us. You see a reflection of this in, in marriages from time to time when one aged partner is uh, almost totally incapacitated, possibly very demanding, and very possibly sort of ugly about it all. And yet the other partner is sacrificing, caring, putting up with, agape-ing 
when romantic feelings are probably long gone. The best way I try to understand agape is this. It's doing what is best for the other person, period. Now, that's what agape means. Now, who are we to love? Well, the first is God. When Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he was mentally dialing up Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Now, there's no debate here. When we get to the business of loving our neighbor, the question becomes, well, who is my neighbor? You know, all that stuff. Well, there's, there's no question here like, well, who is the Lord my God? That, that's, that's not an issue. But God also says how to love him. Jesus said, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Deuteronomy 6 says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Just a slight change in words. Now, it probably could be helpful for us to look at those words, heart, soul, mind, might, strength, all that, and try to see the difference. But really, the piling up of these words simply means love God with all you've got. Just leave it all out on the field. Hold back absolutely nothing. That's why they're just piled up on one another. One man's description, he was an older commentary, of loving God goes like this. The soul eagerly cleaves to, affectionately admires, and constantly rests in God, supremely pleased and satisfied with him as its portion. Another one says this. Whatever terms will best convey to you a description of all the powers, faculties, and capacities which can in any way be affected by love, let them be adopted and employed in exhibiting the nature and extent of the love that you have for God. So anything it takes, just, just give it. Just give it all. And listen to how serious God is about this in the Deuteronomy passage, verse 6. And these words about loving me and, and all that sort of thing, these words... Uh, I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, you and I know what on your heart means. How many times have you said or have you heard someone else say, this has been on my heart for a while and I, I just, I need to talk about it. I need, I need to get it out. That means you've been thinking about it a lot. Or we say, it's just always right there in the back of my mind, even when I'm not consciously thinking about it. Or, it's the first thing I think about in the morning. So we know from experience what being on our heart means. And that's what God desires about our love for him. That, that desire to love him fully in everything. Be on our heart. Be there regularly. That it, it might be on good days the first thing we think about in the morning when we wake up. And, and on and on and on. And then uh, Deuteronomy 6 goes on to describe three different ways that the love of God can... Um, can be ingrained, I think, into our heart as it's on our heart to show itself more regularly in our life. And number one is verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, when we were raising our first two kids, we lived in a culture that stressed the family altar. Anybody here remember the family altar and know what that is all about? <laughs> yeah, just one, okay. That meant that uh, at least after one meal every day, the dad would read something scriptural 
and spiritual that had been written by the denomination. And it was boring. And we saw other kids and other families totally turn sullen and cynical over that ritual. So being the enlightened rebel that I was at that time, I wasn't going to have anything to do with something that was like a spiritual anesthetic to my kids. And I didn't. That was a classic throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I regret it to this day. Now, when our third came along, 12 years after our second, I found more child-appropriate ways to do the same thing. And my son and I have great memories of those years of, of sitting down and, and me trying to get out of my heart, my love for God into his heart. Great memories of that. But my first two kids sort of missed out on that with me. It's really important. And I, guys, I mean moms too, but guys, for your kids to see and to hear you love and talk about loving God and what that means, that is so powerful. Um, a lot of young families just starting out. Guys, I encourage you to take that opportunity to find something that is interesting to the kids about all this and just spend that time with them, whatever it is, even if it's just once a week, that they see and hear your heart for the love of God. Now, in the passage, a second way to ingrain the love of God into real life is, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is sort of the Old Testament way, I think, of carrying out our postmodern desire of doing life together. We, we all, maybe not all, but most of us say that, right? I mean, I say it all the time. Um, and even more specifically, I think about what to talk about as you do life together. Uh, today, when we get together, our talk can be so much all about us, which sort of makes the first and great commandment sound like you shall love yourself with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And man, that's so easy to do. Um, just study the ads, study the advice that bombard our consciousness daily. It's, it's all about us. It's all about what we deserve. It's all about how beautiful we can look. It's all about how driving a certain car can make this earth kind of feel like heaven until you get the first scratch. Um, and we know all of that stuff's a dead end, right? I mean, you know that. But it is so enticing to our flesh, all of that stuff. I'm really privileged to be one of nine guys who get together twice a month for two or two and a half hours. And we study, we discuss, at times we argue about Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Now this is good for you because it's even a workout to just get it there twice a month. It, it, it helps you. Um, sort of Puritanish. That's kind of what we feel like. Puritans, Puritans get a, a bad rap, by the way. They, they know how to do life together. They talked about God. They talked about theology. They talked about how does it affect what I eat, what I do, all, all that sort of thing. H.L. Um, Mencken has not helped us about, with Puritanism. We think Puritanical when we think Puritans. Um, 
Mencken said this, Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> that is just so not true. I mean, they were a joyful people. They were serious, but that seriousness brought a deep joy to them. And those, that's from scholars who have actually really studied them, which I don't think Mencken actually did very much. But during the two years that we've been studying together, these, these, these nine guys, we, we have had our minds expanded and our hearts enlarged with who God is, how much he loves us, and how much we want to love him back. And, and I, I leave those meetings, I always feel recalibrated. And I think every guy in the group would say the exact same thing. And the bottom line is always this. I don't know how many times we've said this. Jason, how many times? It's, it's not all about us. It's all about God. Because we've been talking, we talked about us too in the middle of that. But it really was, okay, God, who are you and what do you want? And that's a good reminder too, I think, for our community groups. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about us in our community groups because that's part of it, getting to know one another at those deep personal levels. But it has to come back to him somehow. Or we end up just fruit loop talk. And then in Deuteronomy, there's a third way to keep the love of God front and center. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, many Jews did this physically by wearing phylacteries around the... Can we get that picture up there? Is it a good enough picture? Yeah, phylacteries either on the forehead, see that box, or on, on the wrist. And it was a small leather pouch or box uh, in which was a piece of paper on which had been written this Deuteronomy 6 passage, real small, then folded up and put into that little leather box. And also, uh, that's called a phylactery, and they were also uh, mezuzahs, like right, right there. And the only difference is that that's sort of an ornamental case, and it's placed on the right side of the doorway of the Jews' home, so that when they were going in or out, they would be reminded again, oh, God, Deuteronomy 6, love him with all my heart, teach my kids, all that sort of thing. And obviously, these are God's reminders to keep loving him on their heart. Well, how about us? We have so many ways, don't we? I mean, I've been into some of your homes, and you've got things on the wall. And they are phenomenal statements about who God is and who you are in relationship to God as those reminders. There's, there's plaques on our desks. There's quotes on our refrigerators. Uh, Karen Carley and uh, Michael Panyard are so good on Instagram of putting up their at least once a week, a little saying that just brings you back to God and, and his love. And then we've got the screensavers and wallpaper on our phones. I mean, we've got so many opportunities to do something like the phylacteries and the mezuzahs, but in front of us to just keep that before us day by day and hour by hour. And that's what these are, right? That's exactly what these are. You, you walk by and you see that said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh. Last week, how, how can I glorify God? Or, or what is the Trinity all about? And all those things that we've covered so far. And here's why God knew they needed a reminder like that. Deuteronomy again. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. In other words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And is this, is this reminder contemporary or what? I don't, uh, I, I don't want to get negative here with us, but it is so easy for us to take this first and great commandment and replace it with another number one. I'm going to put this up on the screen, and I bet every one of us can very easily fill in that blank with something other than God. Your health, your looks, your children, your competency, that's, that's mine. I mean, I, it can so easily overtake me. Uh, being liked by other people. Independence, your money, all kinds of things. God says no. Here's the first and great commandment, which if you follow, will give you all the other stuff as well. It, it comes with it. You, you, you need a feeling of competency? Love me rightly, and I'll give you that competence. You'll be, I'll, take, I'll handle that for you. You don't have to go after it. You want to feel accepted? If you're loving me, I, I'll accept you. You won't need to wheedle around to get people to like you and accept you. Now, if the definition of love is doing what is best for the other person, what's best for God as the other person in us loving him? And I think it's this. I think it's glorifying him by loving him with all you've got. And if you need a refresher, go back to what Matt talked about last week about glorifying God. And Matt was only able to touch just the surface of all the ways in which we can glorify God. That's the reason it's the first and great commandment. Joel's already uh, mentioned Piper this morning. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I really believe we are most satisfied in him when we are loving him with everything we're capable of at that point. And then everything else not only follows, but more importantly, I think it flows from it, including the second answer to the question, who are we to love? And that is our neighbor. A second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, Jesus went to the Old Testament to get his material. Leviticus 19 is where he went, by the way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then 16 verse later, and you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Now, that second one especially, the stranger, that would, that would raise the hair on the back of a Pharisee's neck because they had a system about all of this love business. Everyone was to love God. That was a no-brainer. They totally agreed, agreed with that. Um, but they had graded everyone else on how much they should love them. Inner circle people, you loved them. People in the outer circle, like outcasts or sinners or lepers or Gentiles or Samaritans, remember that word, um, love them less, and even some of them you don't love them at all. So they had, this, they had this table. Love, love less, 
love not at all. Again, a scorecard, right? So if I'm doing this right, then, you know, I'm, I'm in good shape. Of course, that was their tradition. They manufactured that. And believe me, they knew Jesus was after them about that. So you would expect one of these guys to press Jesus about this neighbor business, and sure enough, a, a bit earlier, another lawyer had approached Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells them a story which has become very familiar to us, right? This man is going, a Jewish man is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He gets uh, robbed, beaten up, and left for dead on the road. And pretty soon a Jewish priest comes by, sees him, walks around that side. They didn't want to get near him. A Jewish Levite comes along, walks around that side, didn't want to get near him. And this Samaritan, hated by the Jews, comes, they call them dogs and scoundrels. The Samaritan comes along and he goes over to this guy in the middle of the road and he, he binds up his wounds, he puts, puts oil on them, he puts him on his donkey and takes him to the nearest inn and he drops him off and says to the innkeeper, please take care of him and here's some money to, to t- take care of him with and if that's not enough, when I come back tomorrow after doing my business, I'll give you more money to be able to pay for what has to be done. And then Jesus looked at this guy and said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. It's the one who showed him mercy. He said, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now I used to think that Jesus was answering, who is my neighbor? But Jesus didn't ask him after the story. So, who is your neighbor? Instead, Jesus asked him, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? You see, it's not about the needs of the other person first. It's about our own hearts. And the question to each of us is, are you a neighbor who would do like the Samaritan did? If Jesus had asked, so who is your neighbor? The man could have said, well, any Jew that I could help because the guy was a Jew. But by asking who proved to be a neighbor, Jesus says, there are no boundaries. Since the Samaritan, hated by the Jews, agaped a Jew. So there are no categories of love, love less, love not at all. None. Now, we need to be realistic here, right? You're not responsible to help every needy person in the world, in our city, or probably even in your neighborhood. There are some practical issues involved. Number one, if you're not aware of the need, obviously you can't help. Number two, if you don't have the ability, for example, you don't want me helping you when your furnace goes out on a day with a high temperature of 14 degrees. You don't want me to come over and help you with it. You want to call Z and have him come over and help you. And if you aren't available... When a need arises, because of any number of legitimate reasons, God will have 
someone else who can step in and meet that need. But here's what I need to be careful of. I don't know about you. Here's what I need to be careful of. It's C.S. Lewis. He's become sort of our hero for this series so far. But C.S. Lewis said this. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That's where I find myself many times. Now again, Jesus talks about the how of loving. He says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, self-love doesn't have a good ring to it, I don't think. But I came across this statement by an older commentator commentator he said this but that depends if we mean self-indulgence self-gratification self-spoiling so to speak if we are thinking of the commonplace vulgar stupid aim of doing simply what we like best what is easiest what is most comfortable then certainly is it is a degrading a humiliating a pitiful thing to have that sort of self-love and to engage others in that way, helping them to do what they like best, what is easiest, what is most comfortable. But why explain it thus? Is that what love means? Surely not. See, there's a reason this is the second commandment. If we love God in line with the first commandment, then we will be loving ourselves properly. And then to love others as we love ourselves is proper. It's right in line with who God wants us to be and who he's making us to be. We can't reverse these commandments. There's a reason loving God with everything we've got is number one. And the second one follows as number two. And it's all part of that. That, that triangle of love from eternity in, in the Godhead. And then that triangle of love, that trinity of love invites us into it and we experience it and we're all a part of it. And then he asks us to reach out of that trinity of love and to reach out to others who are made in his image just like us and draw them in so that it's, it's, it's just that because God is love, we can love. And we can love only because he first loved us, John told us. So um, it's really pretty simple to understand but it's really hard to do because the world, the flesh, and the devil all bend us inward toward self-love rather than upward toward God-love and outward toward neighbor-love. So is it hopeless? No. God knows that on our own we're helpless. Not just inadequate, totally helpless to love this way. That's why he sent his spirit to live in us, to energize us, to empower us, to, to do what we can't do on our own, to produce his fruit through us. And then it actually looks like we're doing it. I watch you loving somebody in action, and it kind of looks like you're doing it. You know? But you know you aren't, right? And I know you aren't. It's the power of Jesus working through his spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists nine characteristics of the fruit of the spirit which he produces in us. And it goes like this. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. Is that a random choice out of the nine? No, you take away love, the other eight won't make sense. Try it. Look at First Corinthians 13. It just doesn't make sense without love being the first one. 
I loved Matt's suggested prayer last week when he was talking about us being unable to enjoy God on our own. I'm going to change the subject to love, but it went like this. Father, I cannot love you or others on my own. Will you produce love for you in me by helping me to see more and more of you? And then I added, and will you produce love for others in me by helping me love them the way you do? And I'm going to come back to that prayer at the end in just a couple of moments. But now I want to get really practical about this loving your neighbor uh, thing for a bit. In January, we're going to spend four weeks talking about our lives on mission. And at that time, we'll be talking quite a bit about uh, our love for those that are more distant from us, those that are um, socially, economically, culturally uh, at, at a distance, those that we're not aware of but probably need to be made aware of, those sorts of things. So this morning, I want to focus on loving those that are closer to us, our, our family, uh, close friends, RRC family right here. But even before that, Jan and I were in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia this last week with our son, daughter-in-law, and uh, two grandkids, youngest grandkids. And Tuesday evening, we attended a reenactment of an actual witch trial, which uh, took place in 1706. It was very dramatic, very, very good. And to assure that our grandkids would be able to sit sit up on the bench with the judge during this trial, um, Jan and I got there at 5.30 for a 7.30 program uh, and just sat and waited so we could be the first in line. And we were the first in line, and we were given numbers one to six because we had six of us. About 7.15, we'd been there for an hour and 45 minutes. About 7.15, I, I noticed this lady starting to edge her way up and into the line a, a little bit. Um, and sure enough, when they said, okay, we'll go in now, she kind of got in behind me and cut in behind me and cut off the rest of my family. Now, what would you have done? Or here's a, here's a better question. What would agape do? Well, I knocked her down. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I didn't really. Uh, but I didn't let her in. I'm not sure how kind I sounded, but I said, excuse me? Doesn't sound very kind, does it? And before she could, she started the usual, well, I was right in line behind you. Before she could go very far, and before I could actually introduce her to 30 other people that had been there before her, the guy who was in charge came along and put her back in the general seating area, and I'll tell you, my flesh inside went, yes, yes, yes. That wasn't loving, but now, did I agape her or not? And I'm not going to answer that because I'm actually making one of the sermon questions for you to think about and discuss. So flail away at me if you feel like you have to. And I'll come back to uh, closer to those that, that are really close to us, doing what is best for the other person. Sometimes it's really simple, right? Um, one of you has a washing machine die, and you're strapped financially. That's easy, right? We get together, we buy another washing machine, and so many of you have done so many things like that through community groups and, and other ways that we, we get be here for two hours telling the stories. It's, it's beautiful. It's agape. It's, it's just, it's great. Then meals for new moms. And man, we got so many new moms. So there's, there's all kinds of meals going out. And people after surgery, meals for, to take care of them. It's, that's easy. That's, that's agape. That's, that's beautiful. 
But then there are situations in which the giver, the one who agapes, recognizes a need in a friend, the one to be agaped, particularly more in personal areas, something like uh, a personal habit that's just not edifying, or um, marital issues that are just being ignored, or blind spots of improper behavior, uh, attitudes of bitterness. You get my point? Those kinds of things? What do you do? My default is, it's none of my business. But is that love? Can I really say that allowing those kinds of things to go unaddressed is what is best for that person? Now, before I go any further, I've got to say this, and please hear me on this. We have, I don't think we have any right to address those issues with people that we don't know well. There could be extenuating circumstances. There could be all kinds of things going on that you don't know about because you're not in an active love relationship with them yet. Remember, we are called Roswell Community Church, not Roswell Confrontation Church. You've got to hear that. And by the way, that's why we stress community involvement so seriously around here. It's there that we can and should uh, begin to have those kinds of communications with each other because we have grown in love for one another as a whole part of the transformation into the likeness of Jesus process that we're, we're all involved in. We had one of those just very, very recently in our community group. And it was tough at times, but it was so helpful and healthy and really good. And we love each other more now than we did before that. And I want to get really specific. There's a person I love and who loves me. And the person is not here. Um, we love each other very much. We're in a relationship that is good and deep. And this person is in a relationship that appears to be leading to marriage. And I'm not the only one who has concerns about the relationship. But I'm probably in the best position to confront this person. So what do I do? Well, if I really love them and want what is best for them and want to love them as I love myself, I've got to tell them what I sense from the Spirit is wisdom. I really have no choice, but I know they're not going to like it. And most likely we'll get very emotional and maybe angry. So I'm tempted to default to, well, it's not my business. But here's the real question. What does agape, not agape as our culture defines it, but God's love, what does agape do? And I know that answer, and it's not easy. So what does agape do? It takes me into a conversation with that person at the right time, in the right place, with the, the right prepared heart. That agape communicates, it asks questions, it, it states concerns, and here's the important thing, that agape of me to that person assures that person that whatever decision is made, my density of love for that person will not be reduced even one gram. Now, how do I respond if they don't take my advice? My agape will do whatever is appropriate to help them have the best marriage ever. Even though it was against my advice. What if my advice was wrong and they were right? My agape will celebrate with them. And I'll have just one more proof that I'm not God. 
as if I needed one more. And what if the marriage doesn't work? My agape will never say, I told you so. You should have listened. My agape will grieve with them. And what am I doing? I'm just trying to agape them as I would want myself agaped. I would want honest advice from someone I love and trust, even if it hurt and even if I went contrary to it. I would want to be rejoiced with if the outcome was positive. I wouldn't want someone to throw the I told you so wet rag in my face. I would want to know that if I were wrong, he would not love me less. And if I were right, that they could not love me anymore. You see, agape is both tender and tough. It does not run over people, but neither does it allow itself to be run over because of the fear of rejection. It always seeks what is best for the other person, regardless of the cost. Only God can do that in us. Only. It can only come from the fruit of the Spirit in your life and my life. We, we know it's beyond our unaided ability to produce. We can't work it out. But there is one human being who actually did. And it's his Spirit who wants to produce the same thing in you and in me. I want to take that prayer that I stole from Matt from last week and read a couple minutes ago. I want to take it and uh, I'm going to read it line by line so that if you feel comfortable doing that, that you silently pray that prayer uh, to God on your own behalf. And then we'll come to the table. Father, I cannot love you or others on my own. Will you produce love for you in me? By helping me to see more and more of you. And will you produce love for others in me? By helping me to love them the way you do. In the name of Jesus Christ, who loved to the uttermost. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, we come remembering the greatest act of agape ever. Jesus Christ laying down his life for us when we were his enemies. So if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to come to the table of agape.